Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from Clean Cuts Miles Davis Studio at Broadcast House in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the ten, tens of thousands of people around the world listening on the web or through iTunes. One sign of integrity is the ability to hold an opinion, encounter new information, and then reassess that opinion, even if it means annoying those who used to be on your side. By that standard, Diane Ravitch has integrity galore. Two decades ago, she was an assistant secretary of education under President George H.W. Bush. She supported No Child Left Behind, standardized testing, a national curriculum, and a range of other measures that are now at the core of the education reform movement. But then she looked at the facts, at the ground truth of how these policies and programs were actually working, and she did something few people in public life ever do. She said, you know, maybe I got it wrong. Her 2010 book, The Death and Life of the Great American School System, How Testing and Choice Are Undermining Education, chronicled some of that evolution. Now she's out with a bracing and well-argued new book. The title is Reign of Error. And the subtitle, sure to rankle some and reassure others, is the hoax of the privatization movement and the danger to America's public schools. It's a pleasure to have her here in the studio. Diane Ravitch, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you, Dan. Um, Let me explain to you and our audience how Office Hours works. In each program, we open things up so listeners around the world can ask our guests questions they've submitted about work, careers, education, politics, anything else. If you've got questions, we have answers. And when we don't, we always, always, always make something up. As we like to say, this program is car talk for the human engine. But as always, I get to go first. So let me begin. I want to start here, Diane. You say, and I'm going to quote you now, public education is not broken. It is not failing or declining. You point out that test scores have risen slowly but steadily in areas like reading and dramatically, actually, in areas like math. More people are going to college. This is nowhere close to a crisis. Now, that runs against the reigning narrative. What's going on? Uh, We have a false narrative. Uh, We've been told now since 1983 Uh, that our education system stinks. And in the meanwhile, uh, we have become the world's leader in everything imaginable. Uh, We've been taking international tests since 1964. We've never done particularly well in international tests. And it turns out that they don't really predict anything about the future Hmm. because we outperform all the countries that have higher test scores. Outperform on what kind of criteria? Innovation, economic growth, growth, creativity, technological innovation, democratic institutions. I mean, by every metric you can come up with, uh, we took the first test in 1964. We came in dead last, and Mm -hmm. we've outperformed every country that came in ahead of us. (laughs) And so, well, that's an interesting, I mean, I think that's a great critique. I mean, it raises the question, if, if we're so dumb, how come we're so innovative and successful? And so is that, a, is that, does that mean the test is measuring something that, isn't valid? It's actually measuring your ability to take the test. <laughs> and if you spend a lot of time practicing taking the test, uh, you'll get higher scores. Uh, it, some kids are really, really smart and will get high scores. Other kids are really smart and will pick the wrong answer because they weren't thinking the same way as the standardized test maker was thinking. Uh, there's a, I think there is a lot of, there's a lot of truth to that. And it actually goes to, I mean, again, I always like to bring in my own personal experience here. It goes to um, a daughter who I have who was taking the SAT, and the SAT turns out to be about, as you say, how good are you at the SAT? Mm-hmm. And not much more than that. Well, actually, what standardized tests measure best is your family education and your family income. Mm-hmm. And the SAT publishes a graph every year about the income levels of, and the scores, and they correlate them. 
And the kids with the highest scores come from the highest income homes, and the kids with the lowest scores come from the lowest income homes. And there's a stair step that goes up uh, point by point with scores that shows no deviation whatsoever. The more family income, the higher your test score. Right. And that, I mean, let's go, let's go straight to that because I know that the chart that you're talking about, and it is alarming. I mean, it is in its own way, and I use this word advisedly, un-American. That's not how it's supposed to be here. And what it shows is that even at gradations that we think wouldn't make a difference, it matters. Kids from households with more than $200,000 in income do better than those with over $100,000 who do better than those with over $75,000. It is a stair step. It is absolutely alarming. So let's. So that, that goes to what I think one of the main points in your book, and to me, the most sort, sort of compelling big point in the book. But let's, let's get to that in a moment and talk about. Um, so so why why do we believe that we have a crisis here? Are, are you uh, saying everything is great in the American? No, I don't think everything is great. Where we do have a crisis is, first of all, we have the invented crisis. We have all the talk of crisis, which is uh, ginned up in order to say to people, your public schools are no good. Try anything. Uh, put your kid online. Go to a, get vouchers, get charters. It, it's Part of it is, is self-serving. Uh, but the genuine crisis is a crisis of poverty. Mm. We have more children living in poverty in this country than any other advanced nation in the world. And the most uh, obvious and, and undeniable correlate with low academic performance, whether by standardized tests or any other measure, is poverty. So if we have a crisis, it's that we have almost 25% of our kids uh, living in, in poverty. And that number is going up. Uh, every, the latest census report shows more poverty. So uh, the, there's also the the crisis of income inequality, mm-hmm. uh, where the people at the top are making uh, way more than they did uh, in relation to the bottom. So we're seeing a spread of income inequality that begins to approach the age of the robber barons. So what we have here, again, to use some of your language here, is we have, in some ways, competing narratives. We have the narrative of crisis, of... of um, uh, a rotting school system, and what you're saying is we actually our our public schools are doing reasonably well, and and yet they're actually leaving behind a cohort of kids because of poverty. They're not leaving behind that poverty is actually imprisoning a cohort of kids, right? I and think... that the real problem is the real problem is is poverty, not. A failing th- education yeah, system. Yeah, I'd say we have a huge social and economic problem, and it's not a school problem. In fact, if you uh, go and visit schools, yeah. you'll, you'll think these people are doing heroic work. Uh, they're doing it against tremendous odds. They're underpaid compared to the kind of social value that they add, uh, and they're not getting the resources they need. You could take a, a city like Philadelphia where Governor Corbett is responsible for providing the education of the kids. He, he actually controls the Philadelphia School Board, and yet the system is so underfunded that the children there get no art, no music, no guidance counselors, no social worker. I mean, everything you would associate with having a real school, uh, it's all been cut because uh, why? Why do you think? They're, they're mostly black and Hispanic kids, and the governor's not elected by their parents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, it's, so, it's, so I like the way you put that. So it's not a school problem. It is a poverty problem. And to some extent, it's a political problem. I mean, De- it's it's a po- definitely a political problem. It's a political problem. And in fact, you might say that there's a certain kind of Wizard of Oz that going on here <laughs> where they're saying, don't look at the man behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. The man behind the curtain is a billionaire who is saying that poverty doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter to him. 
Uh, uh, it, it just matters to all these millions of kids who are attending schools where they don't have any art, but they're going to be tested and tested and tested. And he'll continue to say uh, it, it doesn't. Poverty doesn't matter because he's behind the curtain pulling the the, the strings. We're talking to Diane Rabbit. She's the author of *Reign of Error: The Hoax of Private of the Privatization Movement and the Danger to America's Public Schools*. Let's go to that. Your broad that you you really hit on your your main critique in this really fascinating. And as I said, as I said, it's a very bracing and, and very well-argued book. She's, you say, well, what's going on, and these are your words now, is not meant to reform public education, but a deliberate effort to replace public education with a privately managed free market system of schooling. Absolutely. Uh, that's what's happening in city after city. And I don't know if you saw this. There was a report from Moody's Investors just the other day saying that there were some cities that were very strong, New York being one of them, mm -hmm. uh, where the public system is able to survive despite the charters. But there are many weak cities like Detroit and in Philadelphia, and you can go on with a long list of weak cities mm -hmm. where the charters are literally sucking the life out of the public system. And you now have these vultures coming in on the public hmm. system and saying, mm -hmm. we should just get rid of public education altogether and hand it all over to corporations, whether they're for-profit or non-profit. Uh, let, let the corporations do the job. The problem with all of this is we're taking what is a fundamental democratic institution and uh -huh. handing it into private hands. And uh, I, I think I don't think the results will be very good. They haven't been so good up till now. Um, yeah. Now, do you think these folks, here's the thing, are, are these folks just misguided in your view, or do they really have nefarious intentions? I think there are some who just see this, and I, and I say it in the book, and I, yeah. I, don't, I don't paint with this broad brush, brush of saying they're all bad people. Yeah. Uh, I think there's some who see this as they're saving public, they're saving kids, or they're saving kids from failing schools, and mm -hmm. it turns out that the charters actually don't do any better uh, than the regular public schools uh, unless they kick out the kids with disabilities and they exclude the kids who are English learners, which many charters do. Uh, I think there are many people with good intentions uh, who are promoting charters on the theory that the public system can't possibly work. Uh, and there are some people who see it as a profit-making opportunity, and, a, and there are now lots of conferences about how to make money in public education. Yeah, now that's so. The, it seems like with charters, they're, they're two they're two separate things. I mean, is your critique of charters the privatization of the charters or the existence of charters themselves? Because not all charters are run by private companies. I understand that. My critique is that we are, even with the best of charters, embracing a consumerist attitude towards education. Okay. And I think that it's perfectly fine. I don't criticize any question who, any any parent who says, I want to send my child to private school. That's their right. Pay for it. It's your mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. If you want to go to religious school, that's mm -hmm. fine. Pay mm -hmm. for it. That's mm -hmm. your right. If you want to homeschool, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But you have an obligation, no matter where you send your child, and even if you're childless, to support public education because it's part of the commons. And a decent society has a public sector that includes public beaches where you don't pay a fee to get in. Public libraries. Public parks, public libraries, and many places are losing those because they're being privatized. Uh, but that it's part of being a decent and a democratic society to have free access to uh, the public commons and to maintain a public commons that's good. We should have a, our goal should be to have a good public school in every neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things that we see right now is that the quality of your school depends on your neighborhood big time. Right. Uh, and it's not even I mean, that's I think one of the things when we talk about one of the things that I've always said when we talk about public schools, we use that word 
public, and this is in this neighborhood where we're in in Northwest Washington D.C. is a fantastic example of that. Not that far from where we sit, one, two, three, three blocks north of where we where we sit is a school called Janney Elementary School. It's a D.C. public school. It's an excellent school. The students there do very very well. It's an excellent first-rate school. In order to go to Janney, you have to live in this neighborhood. And the cost of admission in this neighborhood is upwards of $500,000 for a house. So that's not, I mean, I, I always wonder, how is that public in any, in any sense? If you, there's, there are parks in this neighborhood where no matter where you live in the District of Columbia, you can come and enjoy the public park, but it's not true of the school. And so is there a way to, is there a way to attack that problem? Well, I think the way to attack that problem is, uh, first of all, not to think you can do anything overnight. Uh, yeah. I mean, as a parent, you might pull your kid out of a, a bad school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to have a long-term goal uh, to reduce poverty, to reduce racial segregation, it occurred to me that about, uh, you know, Obama has this program called Race to the Top, and mm-hmm. they put $5 billion into it, and it was all about test scores, uh, which I believe to be uh, not a very worthy goal. But suppose... The government had taken that $5 billion and held out a competition to districts and said, uh, what incentives can you create? How can we incentivize you uh, to actually desegregate your schools and your neighborhoods? What can you do? What Come up with the best plans you have. And we would have seen something real happen in this society instead of simply blowing away $5 million on test scores. I, I, it would be inappropriate for me to say amen, but that's what I'm thinking. Um, but I also want to pick up on the idea that you mentioned Obama because there is there's a New York Times article that referred to you as, quote, a hero of the left <laughs> now. Um, and I want to point out that that if you look, if you read this book, and again, the book, folks, is Reign of Error by, by Diane Ravitch, you're not making a partisan argument mm-hmm. here. No. You are actually making, in some ways, a pox on both your houses argument. Absolutely. Uh, you're, I, you are uh... as tough on No Child Left Behind from Bush as you are on Obama's race for the top. And, and, I, and I think... I want to point out to listeners here that this is actually something of a, of a trademark. I mean, the, if you look at your book, The Language Police, from 10 years ago, it's the same kind of thing. Yep. You're going after fundamentalists who are censoring um, Texas textbooks right. along with East Coast liberals who are, have gone politically correct to insane mm-hmm. levels. Right. Um, and, and you say that... Um, Elected officials of both parties have signed, these are your words, have signed on to an agenda that threatens the future of public education. So let's go just go back to this one more time. How did this happen? Well, I took issue with the New York Times saying I was a hero of the left because I consider myself to be, if I, and I don't call myself a hero, but the people that I, I try to speak for are teachers and parents. Mm-hmm. And they're not left, they're not right, they just want to have better schools. Uh, and what, what has happened that's been um, difficult to explain, but it's happened, is that 50 years ago, Milton Friedman came up with this idea of vouchers. And for 50 years, there were think tanks all over the country pushing the idea that the money belongs to the people who pay it. It should mm-hmm. go back to the families and they should choose their own school mm-hmm. and that government schools were bad. Mm-hmm. And the, the far right where this idea festered got nowhere with it. There has never, ever been a vote where a state said, where the people of the state said, yes, we want vouchers, give us the money and let us choose. So it's not a popular idea. Uh, it was most recently defeated in Florida just this past fall by mm, right, some uh-huh. overwhelming number. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the people on the right, and I, as you know, I used to be involved in conservative think tanks. Sure. 
um, began to think that charters could be a, a functional substitute for vouchers, uh, that since they couldn't get vouchers mm-hmm. adopted anywhere, and at that point, legislatures were not really open to the idea, uh, they fastened on the charter idea, and the charters became the way of saying, we can get public funding out of the government and put it into private hands, and that's that'll work just as well. And then uh, Clinton went the third way, and Clinton said, "Let's do what. Uh, let's let's encourage the voucher movement." Obama uh, followed Clinton and said, uh, "Let's go charters." He's pushed the race to the top. Has promoted the charter movement more than any other single mm-hmm. government mm-hmm. action. So now we have the federal government promoting privatization. And there's a point in my book, and I don't know if you, that was one of the things you underlined, where I talked about all the things that Obama and Duncan have not complained about. Ah. They're not complaining about the hyper-segregation found in in charters. Mm -hmm. The charter movement has actually increased segregation. Mm -hmm. Even Mm -hmm. in districts that were already segregated, the charters are more segregated. They have said nothing about the proliferation of for-profit charters. Mm -hmm. And it absolutely makes me crazy when I think, and I'm a historian, uh, we've never had for-profit public schools mm-hmm. in America, mm-hmm. and yet now there are states like Michigan where something like 80% of the charters operate for-profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state of Florida is overrun with for-profit mm-hmm. charter schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, people think when they pay taxes that it's going to uh, reduce class size or make uh, make it possible for kids to have art and music. Instead, they're paying off investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder why the silence from the federal government. I mean, if I were uh, in the position of the secretary, I'd be saying, Wait a minute. This isn't right. Why are and, and vouchers? We've seen a proliferation of vouchers. This idea that has never ever been approved by popular vote is now the law in 17 states in the District of Columbia. Never with a popular vote. Why isn't the Department of Education complaining about vouchers? So I see this, um, if you want to call it morphing or merging of the Democratic agenda into the Republican agenda to the point where there is no longer a Democratic education agenda. Mm-hmm. It's simply the agenda of the far right that has become the Ob- what I now refer to as the Bush-Obama era. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let, me, let, me, let me come back on charters here for a second. One of the things I love about this, this book, and again, the book, folks, is, is Reign of Error. We're talking with Diane Ravitch, is that you have these reasonably short chapters that are organized in a way that sort of sets out the claim that's being made there broadly. And then you look at the data of what the reality is. And it's a, I think it's a great way to organize the book, very accessible for readers here. And let's I have your chapter on charters here right now. So the claim is that charter schools will revolutionize American education by their freedom to innovate and produce dramatically better results. But the reality is actually fairly nuanced. You say charter schools run the gamut from excellent to awful and are on average no more innovative or successful than public schools. So what's what's wrong with I, I let's let's step out the ones run for one run for, for for profit. OK, because I do think that violates certain um, uh, moral and social norms of the United States. The whole point about the commons that you were making. But what if a family, what if a group of, of parents are fed up with their neighborhood school and they want to start their own school? And, and it's a public school and it's open to all. What's wrong with that? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. Uh, first of all, uh, it encourages segregation because what happens is they'll say, and, and this is happening now in many charter schools, well, we certainly don't want to take the kids on ventilators. We don't want to have the kids with severe disabilities. And the kids in wheelchairs are an awful lot of trouble. Mm. And those kids who don't speak English, what if we keep them out? Won't that make it easier for our kids to learn? So you end up with... 
isn't this great? We finally got a school with public money, and we've gotten rid of all the kids who cause a lot of trouble. We don't need a guidance counselor. We don't need a social worker. We've gotten rid of all the troublesome children. Mm -hmm. And let's just stick those troublesome children in the public schools, which have now become the dumping ground of American society. Uh uh That's a problem. I think the larger problem, however, is that when we start talking about education as consumerism, Uh, and we each look out for ourselves, then you can forget about the sense of education as a civic obligation, as something that we all have to uh, support and contribute to. It's just about what's good for me. Yeah, let's go go back to that for a second, because, you know, I know you've been called a lot of names, but I don't think that many people realize that you spent most of your career as a historian. Mm -hmm. Um, And tell us... um, how you became, how you got to that point of becoming a historian? Because I think I think a lot of people don't actually realize that. And to, you know, um, I think people might be surprised that you grew up in Texas. Yes. Well, I was born in Houston, Texas. I uh, went from kindergarten through twelfth grade in the Houston public schools. I was never an enemy of public schools. Uh, there were kids who did well. There were kids who do, did badly. I was one of the very few people in my uh, graduating class to go to an Eastern college. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went to uh, Wellesley, which mm-hmm. was pretty unheard of from Houston at that at point in my life. And uh, and your brothers and sisters? Uh, some went to college, some didn't. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, my One of my sisters uh, went to college to find a husband, found a husband, dropped out. Mm-hmm. The other one uh, graduated high school, didn't uh, uh, married, didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they ranged the game. I'm one of eight children. I'm, yeah. thir- I'm third of eight children. Yeah. Uh, and so there w- we were not, uh, as a whole, a highly accomplished family. Uh-huh. I was sort of a rarity in my family because I was interested in, in things like books. Uh, but then I went to Wellesley, had a wonderful undergraduate education, got married. Um, within a very short period of time, like uh, maybe two years later, had my first child, had another child, lost that child to leukemia, uh, had another child. Uh, and, and then decided I wanted to st- really do what I wanted to do, which was to write. Mm-hmm. So I used to write late, late not, at night when the children were in bed. And I had this idea of I had to find a, I want, wanted to write a book because I couldn't publish an article. Mm-hmm. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I, I wanted to publish uh-huh. an article about the New York City public schools because there was this strike in 1968 that lasted for two months. Hmm. The schools were closed for two months. Hmm. And I thought, what a great article. I finally have something I can write about, and and I'll immerse myself in this subject. And I couldn't find anyone to publish it because they said, you have no experience, you haven't published, we won't publish you. So I thought, well, since I can't get the article published, I think I have to write a book about it. And I went to see um, uh, the great historian at at, uh, Columbia Teachers College, it was Lawrence Kremen, and he said, uh, you have no experience, don't even attempt a book. Uh, and he gave me a long list of things to read, and I read that long list. Mm-hmm. And I came back to him six months later, and I said, here's the first 125 pages of Whoa, my book. Uh-huh. So he said, oh, I think you're on your way to writing a book. Uh, and, you know, I was a young mother, and mm-hmm. uh, I had to do all of this late at night when the kids were sleeping. And over time, I finished the book. Um, I got my Ph.D. I skipped getting a master's, by the way. I went right from... And, and and I was 32 years old. And when that I got book the PhD. was the book about the New York City. The New York City, City schools. It's called uh-huh. The Great School yeah. Wars. Uh-huh. And uh, that was when I got my doctorate, uh, u- using that book as my dissertation, uh, and have been a historian ever since. I was at Teachers College for 20 years and then was invited to join the Bush administration as an assistant secretary. Um, and the only thing that worried me about that was that I wouldn't be able to sit home in blue jeans and write all the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but I think the perspective of a historian is really interesting. 
how did we get to this point where we've gone from thinking of schools and education as part of the commons to this much more, consume, to use your word, consumerist view? One of the things that bothers me about when people say schools ought to be run like businesses is that no one can tell me. Are students the pro- what's the pro- are students the product or students the input? The, te- I, the test scores are the product. Well, that's that's alarming in itself. Mm-hmm. But how do we, as a historian, how did that happen from commons to consumerists? And you say something very interesting here. You say a lot of the reformers who you decry in this book, they are these are your words, indifferent to history. Mm-hmm. So if we were more attuned to history, what would it what would it tell us about what to do now, and what would it tell us about how we got from commons to consumer? Well, I think one of the things to understand, and you don't have to be a historian to get this, is that if when we look at the high-performing nations of the world, um, the, first of all, they have a strong public school system. They don't have charters. They don't have vouchers. And they aim to have equity. Uh, and they don't have high poverty. So high poverty is a huge problem yeah. for us. And so instead of directly uh, attacking the problem, we, the root cause of low academic performance is poverty. But we say, well, poverty is not, that's just an excuse. So we're not going to talk about the root problem. Uh, We're going to look for all these other market solutions. Uh, And we do have a love affair in this country with the idea that the business has all the answers Mm -hmm. and um, we can go go to the market. But I think that if you had take a long view of history, uh, we've always had private schools and people understood that to be in a private school, you paid for it. Mm-hmm. We've always had religious schools and the religious schools now are being killed by the charters, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catholic schools all over are dying in part because they're, you know, they're losing their religious, mm-hmm. uh, the people are not becoming priests and nuns. Mm-hmm. But the competition with charters is killing them because even, no matter how low their tuition, it is a tuition and they can't compete with a free school that claims to do the same things. Uh, so we are moving towards a market system, and in many cases, the this is uh, killing urban public education. Uh, we will have cities where if we don't stop this, I mean, Philadelphia being a prime example right now, it it's, uh, has a $300 million deficit, and the governor is responsible for providing, I mean, that's the job, it's in the state constitution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the state must provide a thorough and efficient public education for every child, and he's not funding the schools. He has, actually has control of the Philadelphia schools. There's a a, there's no local control there. The the um, school district is is run by a commission where the majority is appointed by the governor. Mm-hmm. So he's not doing his job, and they're about to privatize. If they get their way, they'll privatize the system. I think that he may actually lose his election if he does this because the people of Pennsylvania realize that if Philadelphia goes, their district hmm. could go next. Interesting. Um Let's. I want to get some. I want to get some calls from listeners here. Let's go to you know one of my favorite topics here, which is merit pay for teachers. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I love to quote Daniel Pink on the ah, subject of merit pay. I love to quote Diane Ravitch, who calls <laughs> merit pay an idea that never works and never dies. I mean, this this is a topic where it is really valuable to have a historical perspective okay. because, first of all, it was tried in England in the 19th century, and it didn't work then. It's been tried for about 100 years in the United States, and it never has worked. Uh, it fails for many reasons, uh, but mostly because 
teachers are already doing the best they know how, and offering them uh, dollars to do it better doesn't change the way they teach. They're still going to do the best they know how. And so if you have, and we've had experiments where there's been a control group and an experimental group and a huge reward, $15,000 if you can raise the test scores. This and is in Nashville Public Schools, right? In Nashville, right, about that. right. Yep. It didn't make any difference at all because both groups were doing the best they knew how. They didn't know how to do any better for money. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just really amazing. Like, I, um, I'm not surprised by the never works part of the claim. The never dies is just startling to me because if you look at the evidence about motivation in general, what it says is these kinds of motivators are good for simple things, not good for complex things. And teaching obviously is complex. And um, the other thing, I think, e- even at a more human level, is that you're, you're taking these people who, by the very choice of profession, are declaring to the world. Money's not the most important thing in my life. Right. Saying, let's motivate them with money. Right. And then I I also don't think that it's done by anybody who's ever met a teacher. If you you look at the underlying critique says that the problem in American education is in poverty or whatever, it's the teachers aren't sufficiently motivated. And, And I find that uncharacteristic of teachers. I find that uncharacteristic of teachers who are paying money out of their own pocket for supplies, Mm -hmm. who are staying up late to do... Uh, lesson plans who are working on weekends to grade papers. And so... Well, and all, all of the uh, different surveys that have been done show that the average teacher works an 11-hour day, mm-hmm. not necessarily in the school, but in the course of the day because they have so many responsibilities. So they're, they've chosen a career where they know they'll never get rich. And there are teachers, I hear from them all the time on my blog, uh, where they'll say, you know, in, in my state, uh, it takes 15 years to reach $40,000 a year. Um, I mean, this is most of the guys who are criticizing teachers have secretaries who make more than teachers do. And so they treat teachers as these greedy, selfish uh, people who don't put students first, which is ridiculous. Um, If you ask teachers, they will always say the same thing. You say, well, why did you become a teacher? They never say, I got into it for the money. (laughs) They'd be be professionally demented if they said that. Yeah. Uh, They'd be unfit to teach because they would show that no (laughs) utter lack of judgment. Right. But what, what they always say is, I thought I could make a difference in the lives of children. Th- that is the universal response. And for that, they are subject to constant vilification. And over these past few years, since uh, Arne Duncan invented the narrative that teachers are the problem and that we have to find a test score and a metric uh, by which to measure them and, and uh, take away their uh, tenure and, and, and cut their do whatever is necessary to motivate them by carrots and sticks, um, the morale of teachers has plummeted. I mean, the mo- to me, one of the most alarming facts is that the modal years of experience of teachers used to be 15. Mm-hmm. That meant that they were half above and half below. Mm-hmm. The modal years of experience today is one. Because there's such incredible we're losing, turnover. Yeah, yeah, we're losing experienced teachers. They're, they're just saying, I'm out of here. This yeah. this is not a, the job I son, signed on for. Yeah. It's test, 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 and yep. constantly having people threatening me with my job, threatening yep. to take away my tenure, threatening yep. me with this. It's We're ruining um, the job of teaching and making it not a profession but a, a job for temps. Let's go to some questions from listeners. Let's take um, this question right here coming in. Hi, you're on the air with Diane. My name is Britt Humphrey, and I teach in Kansas City, Kansas. I have a two-part question. First, I'd like to know who you would nominate for the next Secretary of Education. And then second, what should be their top three agenda items? 
All right. Thanks, Brett. That's a good question, yeah. Brett. Uh, I, I wish that Obama had selected his 2008 education advisor, the person he put forward all the time, uh, Linda Darling-Hammond, who was at Stanford University. She knows more about teaching uh, and about education than almost anyone I can think of. She's very articulate. She did a great job for him. And then uh, he did a kind of bait and switched and, and dropped Linda. Uh, what should be her top priorities? I would say to stop the uh, federal uh, control that has been so incredibly extended over these past few years, uh, get Congress and the Department of Ed- Education out of the business of telling schools how to reform themselves because they have no idea how to reform schools, uh, stop with all the sanctions and rewards and punishments that are being offered for test scores, and focus instead on what the Department of Education is supposed to do, which is to protect the civil rights of children, um, distribute money where it's most needed for the kids who have the greatest needs, and also to provide a reasonably good research base so that we can learn from mm. experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a great agenda. Um, you also have, speaking of agendas, I mean, there's a, I think there's a tendency in, in, in some writers to diagnose like a lion and prescribe like a lamb. Say, okay, here's why everybody else is wrong, and then they give these kind of anemic solutions. But the solutions that you have in this book are actually pretty powerful. You want to talk about some of those? What, what, sure. What, what's the, what's the, forget about the Secretary of Education's agenda. What's the ravage magic wand agenda? Okay, so the magic wand is, uh, again, as I said earlier, it's not an overnight agenda. No. Uh, and when I talk to people um, from Finland, they talk about having spent 30 years changing their school system. Yeah. Uh, I would say that a 10-year timeline would be a good one. But first of all, what's lacking now is political will. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, uh, I would change the tax structure to uh, uh, cut back on the number of people who make billions of dollars and to provide uh, a decent, uh, you know, less income inequality. I think mm-hmm. that, that will make a huge difference is just to reduce poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my book, the things that I list are uh, prenatal care for every poor woman. Right. Now let's let's. I think that that is a is a very powerful idea because it takes it out of this this realm of being a school problem with mm-hmm. basically saying, let's do something that I think is fundamentally American, which is give every child a decent opportunity. Right. And people, you know, I can understand they're saying, but what's that got to do with education? Oh man. And I explain in the book that it yeah. has everything to do with education. Yes, exactly. Because when women don't have prenatal care, they're apt to uh, give birth to babies with developmental deficiencies, and they'll be in special education. And they'll, uh, you know, in addition to having a, a, a less in life in many respects, uh, our society will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to educate them into special education. So, and, and by the way, when the UN ranked us with other nations, we came in number 131 out of 184, uh, which uh, tied us with Somalia. So it's, on, it's on, on, uh, on providing prenatal yeah, uh-huh, care right. to, to women who don't who, who can't afford it. So, so that's a, that's a uh, as we would say it's a it's a shanda it's a shame. Uh, you go you, and, and you go a little further in people in kids' lives. Like is, I think what I think the what I like about your remedies is that it broadens out from this issue being a quote unquote school problem into you're basically talking a human life problem. You also you also uh, propose universal preschool. Tell us about right. that. Universal preschool is probably the most heavily researched um, and powerful thing we could do short term. And that is to make sure that when kids come to kindergarten, they have a better shot at, at being prepared in terms of vocabulary, learning how to socialize with uh, other children. It doesn't mean that they should be taking bubble tests and standardized tests as we're doing now in so many cities so stupidly. 
It just means that kids have an opportunity to learn uh, words like up and down and colors and numbers and to play and, and to do it under the supervision of highly qualified teachers. Uh, again, we were we were ranked, uh, along with other countries, by The Economist magazine. We came in 34 out of 45 countries. So we're way behind in providing uh, universal early childhood education. Uh, and now, that has, that has been, to be fair to the Democratic Party, that has been on the Democratic Party's yes. agenda. Yes, that has not been left off the no. agenda, uh, but we haven't made a lot of progress no. towards it. And the, the guy who's mayor-elect, or not mayor-elect yet, but the Democratic candidate for mayor who's likely to be elected, Bill de Blasio, mm. has said that he wants to tax people making over $500,000 a year uh, to pay for universal pre kindergarten. I think it's a great idea. Uh, another thing that I've recommended is reduce class sizes for kids who are struggling. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, uh, again, heavily research-based. And yet I've been in, in schools and in cities like Los Angeles where these kids who have high needs are in classes of 35 and 40. They're, they're going to be behind the rest of their school lives. Uh, so we should definitely focus on, on reducing class size, particularly for young children and particularly in the early grades. So there are things we can do in school. Uh, we have, because of the testing obsession, many schools have dropped the arts. Oh. Uh, many schools have dropped physical education. Our kids are getting physical education once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this f- sort of fundamental belief. Uh, I don't like the status quo. So people, th- what the critics say is, I'm defending the status quo. Not at all. The status quo is high stakes testing and uh, privatization. I oppose them. So I think that every child should be in a school that has a, a, a program where they have the arts and physical education and history and literature yeah. and geography, all of those things. Uh, if it's good enough for the rich kids, it's good enough for the poor kids. When you say, uh, amen, the, you have a chapter called The Essentials of a Good Education, which is, lays out some of your solutions here. And you say that every school should have a full, balanced, and rich curriculum, including the arts, science, history, literature, civics, geography, foreign languages, mathematics, and physical education. Right. And if you look at the elite schools in this country, they have all those things. That's what they do. Yeah. And you know, the funny part is, I went to an ordinary public school in uh-huh. Houston, Texas. We had all those things. And now here we are, many years later, we can't afford it. How about your, how did your, your experience as a parent inform any of your views on education? Uh, th- those were the things I wanted for my children. Yeah. And I now have grandchildren. Uh, my, my children went to private school. I paid for it. My grandchildren, my uh, number three, goes to public school. His little brother, number four, will go to public school in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. And they go to very good public schools. Yeah. There's too much testing. Uh, the kids get a whole lot of homework. He's mm-hmm. only in second grade, and he's getting uh, ridiculous amounts of homework. Uh, but I, I don't think that we make our country stronger. Or, I mean, I don't think of him as, as, as a global competitor. I think of him as a child. <laughs> uh, great point. Let's go to, uh, back to uh, another listener. Let's go uh, to this call right here. Hi. Uh, welcome to Office Hours. Diane and Dan, this is Clark from Danville, Virginia. We've doubled down on the industrial model of schools, rewarding more testing, conformity, and standardization. Is it enough to push back at those? Or should we be pushing our public schools and our communities to model alternatives like Sudbury, Montessori, or big picture schools, which I would argue instill more autonomy, inspiration, and passion for learning in our students? Thanks much. Bye. Um, so he's, 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 he's asking, you know, are there specific models out there, Montessori, Sudbury, Big Picture Schools, I should say, for the uh, interest of uh, disclosure that I'm on the board of Big Picture, uh, the nonprofit that runs some of these schools. Um, right. 
Uh, My my answer is yes to both. I think we need to, uh, there's a line in the book where I say we have to stop doing the wrong thing before we can start doing the right thing. It's a great line in the book. And we're, we're doing so many things now that people are obsessed with the testing. Of course, we have to stop this obsession uh, because we're not learning anything new. We are the most over-tested nation in the world. Mm-hmm. There's no other nation in the world that tests every child every year except for us. So we should stop doing the wrong thing, and we should uh, encourage, uh, whether it's Sudbury or Montessori or, or Big Picture, we should encourage lots of models because creativity and innovation comes from right. lots of different ways of doing things. Not competition, uh-huh. per se, uh-huh. but rather allowing... Uh, people to have different ways of achieving the same goals. I'm, I'm Although very the much charter a, movement would say that's what exactly what we're trying to do. Except that what's considered success in the charter model is um, a very high degree of conformity. Uh, th- there are specific techniques that involve snapping your fingers, never deviating from it, and look at the teacher in the eye, and you get, you get suspended if you don't walk in a straight line. This, to me, takes schools back to the early 19th century. Mm-hmm. To call this innovation, is uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, what about uh, models overseas? Every, I mean, people, uh, a lot of uh, folks are very, very impressed with the with the Finnish model. There are obviously limits in how much you can compare the U.S. Right. with Finland, but what about the Finnish model? Well, I was in- intrigued enough that I went to Finland two years ago and, and had the leading Finnish expert take me to various schools. And what's impressive there is that, first of all, they got most of their ideas from us. So when hmm. people say, we can't do that, well, they learn what they got from uh, basically from American schools. And uh, if many European schools are very rigid. Uh, in many European schools, you know what's going on at every hour of the day, and it's happening across Absolutely. the country. Right. Not in Finland. Mm-hmm. In Finland, they insist on having very well-prepared teachers. Uh, the kids apply to become a teacher at the end of high school, oddly enough, and they accept only one out of ten that applies. Uh, they then go through a five-year program that is not just teacher training, but also education. Uh, they have very low poverty. Uh, they have no standardized tests whatsoever. I mean, w- with all of our testing obsession, and we want to be like Finland, uh, we don't copy anything they do. Uh, <laughs> one is we have very low standards for entry into teaching, mm-hmm. and the other is that we're we're doing all the standardized testing and and saying why can't we be like Finland? Well, we should be more like them. Of course, they there it's a homo- there's some big differences. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a homogeneous country, but you know Finland does a, a lot better on all the international tests. Uh, than uh, Denmark or Norway or Sweden, which are right next door and which are demographically exactly mm-hmm, the same. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. get great results because they believe in trusting their teachers and giving their teachers a professional autonomy exactly. uh, and treating them as professionals. Yeah. Um, the, um, they also, uh, the other thing is that they have a very low poverty rate. And that's exactly right, and, and that we could learn from that too. Uh, absolutely. Well, I think with the, the, the I think the dirty little secret, which I actually didn't realize, which got in, read in your book, is that actually our kids in poverty do better than the Finnish kids in poverty. Yes, this is true, and also, and this is something that you will not hear from, uh, let's say, Michelle Ree. Uh, there was a. We've m- gone almost the entire show without mentioning Michelle <laughs> oh Reed. This oh is amazing. Well, in in the she likes to talk about how our scores are number X, Y, or Z, and we're not number one. We never were number one in international test scores, uh, but on the most recent test that was given, it was December. It, the scores came out in December of 2012. Uh, our students actually tied the Finnish students in fourth and eighth grade in mathematics. Yeah, the, you you write in here that there are, our mathematics scores have actually gone up. Uh, uh, gone, up, gone up significantly, and you actually have a very interesting nuanced explanation for why reading is actually harder to yeah, yeah. Because bring re- that up. Yeah, reading reflects the home. And, yeah, and math exactly. is just taught in school. Yeah, 
Um, let's try to see if we can get in another one more question, one more listener question. Uh, let's go back to the phones. You're on the air with Diane. Hi, Diane and Dan. This is Mitch Nobis, and I'm a teacher from Farmington, Michigan. The issues facing education are complicated and hard to break down into an elevator pitch. But with so much evidence against current education reform measures like testing, how can we do that? How can we quickly and easily spread the message that reform is breaking schools that weren't previously broken? Um, that's a great question, and I have to tell you, I was just recently in Michigan, in Marquette, Michigan, uh, and before that, I was in Lansing meeting with the Tri-County Alliance of School Superintendents. Nobody likes what's going on in Michigan except for the governor and the legislature. <laughs> you have a terrible governor. You have a terrible legislature, and the only way you're going to change it is to vote these bums out of office. Uh, they're trying to destroy public education. They're privatizing everything that isn't nailed down, and they don't believe in public education. Uh, the tests are not a good measure of good teachers because, if you're te you, as you well know, it depends on who's in your class. If you're teaching English language learners, you're not going to get high scores, and, and you could go on and on with how the composition. You're measuring the composition of the class. Um, what I would suggest, not to be self-serving, is you could take my book and use it as a guide for action. It explains to you why the standardized testing is not a measure of school quality or teacher quality and, and what we should be doing instead. But what you're going to have to look at is, is political action, getting together with other people in the community, particularly parents. Parents are the great sleeping giants. It's their children mm. that are being hurt by all of this. And uh, I can give you chapter and verse of what parents are doing in other states. In Texas, where the moms got mad, they rolled back all the testing. Not all of it, but most of it. Uh, and the, the parents in, in New York are, are angry right now because the scores just went down. Uh, you know, they dropped through the floor because of the test. They're angry at the test. Uh, so I think it's going to take a lot of, of parents, teachers acting together, uh, collaborating to make to to get us back to a common sense path of of really improving our schools. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the so the pitch is, which is sort of the the, the way to encapsulate it is I think that you're is that we don't have a school problem, we have a poverty problem. I think that's one way to put it. Yeah, we have a social problem. Social problem, not right. a school problem. Right. Um, and I'm not saying our schools are perfect. Our schools need to improve. I'm also not saying that I like the schools the way we have yeah. them now. What we have now is what was created by the Bush-Obama era. I like to see all of that swept away and allow teachers to, to act as professionals. And I'd also like to see better better prepared teachers coming into the classroom rather than people who've had a... Uh, gotten their degree online, uh, or uh, gotten five weeks of training, and they're called. Uh, and Congress decides they're highly qualified with five weeks of training. Uh, um, let me ask you one last question before I let you go. It's a philosophical question. I want you to think about this from the historian's perspective, but also from your your own perspective as a human being. What what's the purpose of education? I don't think we talk about that enough. What's the purpose? I I can encapsulate it very quickly. I know why this country created public schools. We became the wonder of the world because everybody else had only uh, private schools and tuition bearing schools, and uh, we created public schools because we wanted citizens. We wanted people who could vote and at some point when they grew up and choose their leaders wisely. We wanted people who were educated to serve on a jury and be able to weigh evidence and make good decisions. That's the function of education. And uh, we want people, we, you know, today we, we want people to have the skills and knowledge uh, so that they can make uh, not just good decisions about who to vote for, uh, but how to adjust to a changing world. It's changing very rapidly. And the measures we have are not adequate to the needs we have. We've been talking to Diane Ravitch. She's the author of 
a number of books. Her latest is Reign of Error, The Hoax of the Privatization Movement and the Danger to America's Public Schools. Diane, where can people find out more? You're an active blogger. You're an active tweeter. Well, I have a, a blog that just passed the 7 million page view mark. And Whoa. it's only been around for a little over a year. Uh, it's dianeravich.net. Uh-huh. Uh, and I tweet as Diane Ravitch. But I'd uh-huh. rather you go to my blog because uh, every day I've got 10, 12, 15 articles uh, uh, telling you what's going on all across the country and letting people know you are not alone. This is happening everywhere. We've been talking to Diane Ravitch. Uh, That's it for Office Hours. Thanks for being with us. Please tune in to our next episode when we'll be talking about education again. Our guest will be Amanda Ripley, author of The Smartest Kids in the World. Until then, I'm Daniel Pink. This is Office Hours. If you missed an episode, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. But you can make amends by going to iTunes or danpink.com to hear our previous episodes. Thanks for listening.